Welcome to Intelligent Machines and Medicine, conversations about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and healthcare. This podcast is brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Adria Hoffman, and I invite you to join us as we explore the potential of AI in medicine and the big questions that guide our work. I was thrilled to welcome Dr. Alexander Ryu to the podcast. Dr. Ryu is a physician data scientist in hospital internal medicine. In his practice, he cares for acutely ill, hospitalized patients with a variety of health conditions. Dr. Ryu also develops and studies artificial intelligence and machine learning tools that can improve care for his patients. In addition to his clinical and research work, he contributes to resident and medical student education on inpatient teaching services. We had a wonderful conversation about the promise and potential of AI to reduce administrative burden in healthcare. We specifically discussed learned language models and natural language processing, as well as how clinicians might get started in their exploration of these tools. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much, Dr. Yu, for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I'm really excited to be chatting with you, Adria. Let's start by telling the audience about your background a bit. How did you get into medicine? Sure, yeah. So um, I was kind of uh, surrounded by medicine from a pretty early age growing up in Rochester, Minnesota, where uh, Mayo is located. Um, And, you know, there's just a lot of opportunities for sort of early exposure, whether through um, research programs or even faculty from Mayo coming to visit the local public schools and teach extra courses, things like that. Um, And then sort of over time developed a deeper interest in the field, I think both for the interesting scientific aspects of always working to sort of discover and implement new ways to help patients. And then also just the the human aspects of it as well, Um, you know, connecting with uh, patients and um, colleagues and, and helping people ultimately through difficult situations and, you know, being able to cure people when we can and, um, you know, treat them in other situations too. And so I think it's a combination of sort of the intellectual stimulation and the, the deep meaning and the profession that drew me in. What area do you currently practice in? I practice in hospital internal medicine. Tell us a little bit about what that looks like for you. Yeah, so hospital internal medicine is basically a general medicine physician uh, who works only in the hospital. Um, and as opposed to working in clinic and doing sort of like primary care appointments. Uh, so um the easiest way I think that I usually explain it is uh, for patients who, you know, might come to the emergency department with an issue and then their issue is severe enough that they need to be admitted to the hospital for a little while. Um, then they wind up under our care uh, after they've been brought into the hospital. Um, and we pretty much, uh, you know, function across a variety of different specialties. We don't do sort of major uh, invasive procedures or surgeries, but we do take care of people before and after those a wide variety of, of situations that we care for. And that's part of what uh, makes it really exciting and interesting for me. That's very cool. So how did you get interested in AI? So I got interested in AI, I think, because it sort of combined um, a few different interests of mine, which were... Uh, there's, I think, you know, interesting academic aspects of it. Um, there's interesting sort of 
cutting edge technology aspects of it as well. And then there's also just the opportunity to build things in addition to sort of answering research questions and testing hypotheses. I think putting all of those together is really what drew me to the field and obviously is kind of like a, a little bit of a right place, right time type of thing too, with all of the interest uh, that's exploded in the past several years. Yes, many of us may have learned about artificial intelligence just because of the news in the last few years, but how did you get started in this space? Let's see. Um, I heard about it being involved in um, sort of medical technology and uh, um, healthcare startup space in medical school, uh, but then also um, recall a conversation with a, with a good friend where, uh, you know, this person essentially um, had founded sort of a AI focused company of their own and was trying to impress upon me, you know, this is the stuff that people are going to be learning in kindergarten decades from now. Like if you don't uh, sort of get up to speed on this yourself, you're going to be left behind. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways that you can self teach with it. And so I really took that to heart and kind of uh, dived in. It turned out to be pretty, pretty good advice. If you were to give any advice to a colleague, another clinician, you know, who's interested in learning a little bit about this, where would they go to get started? I think, you know, there's a ton of great resources uh, around, whether it's uh, podcasts or um, online courses or even just uh, uh, colleagues who are, who are willing to help. Uh, but a resource that I like to recommend is a um, the Coursera course from Andrew Ang, uh, kind of like an intro to machine learning course. And I think it's a really great blend of sort of working from basic math principles up to how those inform uh, common machine learning algorithms and then actually learning how to code some of those yourself. Um, and it's just extremely uh, well done course. And that was kind of how I got started. One thing that I'm always encouraging people to do is just to uh, learn how to code basically. For anyone who's interested in this space, uh, you know, I think it's still uh, relatively early innings, particularly in healthcare of the adoption of these technologies. And so if you're the kind of person that can see both the clinical applications of these and understand what's going on uh, technically, that's a huge, huge asset for being able to do meaningful work in this space. Really, the biggest hurdle is just going from not coding to coding at all. It doesn't really even necessarily matter what your first language is, whether you're doing like R or Python or, you know, Stata was the first thing I learned how to code. Um, and once you kind of get through that uh, mental hurdle of just understanding how coding works generally, you know, you can do so much with that, uh, even if you sort of just do conventional um, sort of like statistical uh, analysis that you might do for research projects outside of machine learning. Uh, you can do those all more efficiently if you can code. You can do them uh, with fewer errors and more uh, replicably. I think if you are specifically interested in diving into machine learning, then then learning Python is a great way to go. But I just think it's a it's a tremendous skill set that's made a, a huge difference in my career um, and add a lot of value really across any kind of uh, project that I'm doing. And um, you know, there's so many great resources out that uh, really anyone can get started and, um, you know, get reasonably good at it. It's great to know that there are such in-depth resources available and that they're so widely yeah. available now. Mm -hmm. And even for free, which is really cool. Let's talk a little bit more about your specific areas of interest in AI and how it relates to your clinical practice. 
Oh, sure. Yeah. So there's probably, you know, um, a handful of us in hospital medicine who have kind of uh, varied backgrounds in data science or informatics and, or some combination of those, both formally uh, studied and sort of self-taught as well. But, um, you know, I think the unifying theme for us is really kind of just looking for uh, precise and useful applications of AI and machine learning in healthcare. Um, you know, I think the uh, number of potential applications is, is uh, essentially limitless, but then I think trying to, um, you know, use the insight that we have working both as clinicians and in sort of these tech spaces to distill those uh, where there's, you know, something actionable that we can offer folks who consume the information and also where there's a business case for developing a tool or an algorithm uh, that serves a particular function. Um, that's really, I think, kind of the focus that we try and bring to the table. And then, um, you know, I think beyond that, there are certain areas that uh, various specialists are probably more qualified to work on, you know, whether that's radiologists working on imaging or cardiologists working on ECGs. But, you know, I think even besides those, there's a really wide playing field of opportunities. Um, and so I think we're always kind of just exploring to see where we might be able to, to make an impact and um, develop something that's uh, unique and useful um, that sort of meets those criteria. Of course, that's like a sort of a, a broad set of ideas at the same time. And accordingly, the projects that we have pursued to date are pretty disparate from each other in some ways, but I think we like it that way too, just because it, it keeps the work interesting and there's all kinds of insights that we can connect across different projects. Some of the work that's been relatively more developed to date is around um, hospital flow and specifically uh, predicting which patients who come to the emergency department will ultimately require hospital admission. Um, we've published on an algorithm for that, that I think is somewhat unique in that it uses information that's available very early in the person's emergency department course. Uh, so you sort of get a forward looking, you know, by anywhere from three to six hours about view of which patients are going to need to come into the hospital. And for some of our smaller hospital sites where this is now implemented in addition to our main Rochester site, uh, that can um, yield useful insights on uh, coordinating patient transfer, um, you know, where ambulances need to be to bring patients to the right hospitals, uh, and then also just within a hospital, figuring out how many beds are needed in a given time period, how we're going to get those cleaned and ready for patients, uh, and things like that. And then, of course, if the emergency department also has extra resources for helping to either uh, expedite patients coming into the hospital or expedite getting them home, this information is also hopefully helpful to them in terms of focusing their efforts on the right patients. So that's one thing. Uh, and then another area is, is um, really focused kind of more on clinician workflow improvements. We've been also working to uh, develop some software that basically makes it easier for patients, for clinicians to review medical records using different combinations of um, artificial intelligence to sort of present relevant information extracted from large uh, amounts of text so that clinicians can basically save time when they're trying to review charts, which can be particularly time consuming for patients that come with a lot of records. That work has great potential to reduce administrative burden, which is something that has been noted with electronic health records. Can you say a little bit more about the high level, how that functions? 
Yeah, so uh, in that technology, we use um, primarily uh, multiple natural language processing methods to try and comb through the pages worth of text that may be available for a given patient to extract the relevant information that a given clinician needs to know. You know, what a clinician in one specialty may want to or need to know is often different than what a different clinician needs to know. And so um, trying to tailor those insights as much as possible, uh, ultimately to make record review thorough for clinicians, but also efficient is really what we're focused on with that work, particularly with all the breakthroughs that have now happened with uh, natural language processing and large language models. Um, this is a pretty exciting space to be working in. So I think most people at this point have probably heard the terms natural language processing or large language models, particularly as generative AI, like ChatGPT and other things have become buzzworthy. But if you could break it down for somebody who really doesn't know what that means, how might you describe it? Sure. So relatively uh, high level terms, natural language processing is really the field of sort of artificial intelligence as applied to text. You know, in terms of thinking about relative complexity, you know, the sort of Simplest uh, implementations of artificial intelligence and machine learning might be applied to sort of uh, like numeric data that you could populate into an Excel spreadsheet, something like that, or also known as structured data. Um, and then there are various types of unstructured data, uh, like images or videos, um, audio, uh, text, and really um, any of the AI applied to text falls in the category of uh, natural language processing. And then large language models are uh, sort of a recent breakthrough in this space where NLP is really quite a broad field where it might be, you know, making some determination about a patient based on text. It might be, uh, you know, trying to hone in or present to a clinician a particular piece of text or, you know, label different terms within a block of text. But large language models are really focused on sort of a question answer interface uh, where you can ask a question and uh, a large language model will then uh, draft up a text response to that, basically by being tuned across huge amounts of text from all across the internet, which includes everything from Wikipedia to books to web pages, uh, to basically try and synthesize all that information and draft up a response to whatever your question might be. You know, I keep thinking about clinicians' hesitancy around new technologies. And the first thing that many people speak about when you ask them about new technologies are the hurdles that they experienced with the implementation of EHRs. And from what you're describing, this, this sounds like something that could actually alleviate some of that burden. But at the same time, we have the hurdle of, oh, that was a heavy lift. I'm not sure I want to do this. So how might you motivate them to explore it a little bit? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think for sure the challenges are real with healthcare being very regulated, um, you know, having a number of concerns around uh, adoption of these technologies as it pertains to data security and uh, data privacy. But I think in terms of motivating folks to at least try experimenting with some of these, 
you know, I think large language models is are, are probably one of the biggest breakthroughs that we've seen in artificial intelligence and machine learning over many years at this point. And it really does present kind of a unique opportunity to, you know, be able to interact with text in ways that we haven't been able to before. Based on what we're seeing in, in sort of other industries, there is a large opportunity to sort of reinvent how we do a number of different processes. The opportunities to do that in medicine won't be uncovered unless we're trying things out ourselves, um, you know, experimenting with what works and what doesn't, you know, seeing where these models work, where they work well and where they don't. I think it's really up to all of us to play some part in, in that discovery process. What are some of the things that you've learned leading these multidisciplinary teams and moving this work forward? Yeah, what I've learned from this, I think there really is kind of a unique space to sit in for um, people who function as uh, clinicians and then kind of also understand what's going on uh, with data science and um, the machine learning aspects of things like this. You know, I think as I've grown into this space over the last three, four years or so, um, really come to appreciate how, you know, at times there is sort of a disconnect between what may be going on uh, academically in terms of development of these technologies and evaluation of them, and then what's actually needed or useful uh, when you're seeing patients or treating patients. And, you know, I think part of that is is intrinsic to healthcare in that it's not necessarily easy, even for someone with a fantastic data science or computer science background to just show up at a hospital, see what a doctor does every day. Um, you know, there's all kinds of privacy hurdles and regulations around that. And so being able to bridge uh, those understandings to, again, sort of like focus the uh, applications onto things that really have an impact for patients or things that have sort of a business case behind them, I think is one of the uh, biggest takeaways that I've seen so far. There's also been tremendous opportunity for, um, you know, being able to work in teams that have sort of uh, non-overlapping expertise, whether that's, you know, engineering plus natural language processing plus uh, clinical expertise or any number of other combinations. Uh, I think that teams like that often have an opportunity to really move the needle and develop things that are uh, unique and useful in healthcare. Yeah, I encourage uh, anyone that's listening to sort of like seek out, uh, you know, people around you who can who can help expand, you know, your mind and the work that you're doing in order to to make an impact in this space. I mean, it sounds like honestly an extension of what clinicians do anyway, right? You all use your critical thinking skills you're in in really interesting ways. There is both there's an art and a science to practicing. That art sometimes is where the critical thinking skills come come in and your clinical decision-making processes. And this is a way of thinking creatively and extending that critical thinking to say, what are all of these challenges we're seeing and how do we alleviate some of those hurdles or obstacles? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I think the one thing I might add too is that for you know, clinicians who are able to bring sort of a data science uh, lens to things too. One of the most helpful lenses that comes with that, I think, is being able to evaluate the feasibility and the work needed to develop a given AI machine learning tool. Because I think there are, you know, plenty of circumstances where machine learning or AI tool is the best solution for a problem, but then there are plenty 
uh, of cases as well, where you could do that, or you could do something, you know, an order of magnitude simpler that would work 90% as well. Mm -hmm. um, or there are other cases too, where, you know, you could spend a huge amount of time developing an AI tool for a relatively narrowly focused task um, to replace uh, manual um, sort of work on that task. But perhaps, uh, you know, just the amount of work that would go into that doesn't necessarily make it worthwhile to try and replace the uh, manual task. And uh, it's worth, it's, it actually makes more sense just to sort of keep it that way. It reminds me of many conversations I've had about innovation for the sake of innovation. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's not necessarily the best approach. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So along those lines, what is a realistic kind of time frame? And I think this is something that many of your colleagues out in the world would be interested in knowing if they're new to this space or they haven't been involved in many projects, what kind of time frame is it from, you know, conceptualization or initial ideation all the way into forget scaling it up, just even getting it to a pilot phase? Yeah, well, that's a great question. You know, I think it is pretty um, project dependent just because sort of the number of or the, the layers of complexity that may go into a given project uh, can vary hugely. Um, and then I think also just depending on institutional processes and how many approvals you may need, how deep is your IT department in terms of being able to support your work versus, you know, being backlogged with other things, uh, all plays into it. But I can at least share sort of our, again, I've only been doing this for a few years, but experience from one project that I have seen from kind of beginning all the way through to a live deployment with our emergency department admission predictor tool. So that initially started out as something that was completely academic, really. Um, you know, we intending to publish some papers on it and uh, see if there was interest in implementing it, but we didn't know if there, if there actually would be or not. So I think that started out in sort of the spring of or maybe late winter of one year, you know, we did some analyses on it. We uh, had, I think, papers probably drafted or submitted by uh, summer of that year. Um, we then kind of went around meeting with various groups to see if there was interest in putting this into live clinical workflows. Um, and this is really the first model that that we had homegrown and then tried to put into Epic, sort of in, in Epic's native cloud infrastructure, I should clarify. We actually didn't meet a lot of interest with that. So this kind of stalled out probably, you could say, for um, a few months time. And, you know, we were content that we at least published uh, a paper or two out of it. Uh, but then sort of through some other practice initiatives that were happening, we're asked to implement this into live workflows as we we're uh, our institution was basically working to make interactions between the emergency department and the hospital more efficient. So we then sort of, uh, I think by fall of that year, were investigating how to make this happen. Um, again, this was there's a lot of, I think, uh, stones to turn over because we were sort of the first going through this process. And then after another few months of uh, some trial and error and consulting with a variety of different uh, experts across Mayo and at, and at Epic, um, we were able to uh, get this model functioning, I believe, towards the end of that year versus um, beginning of the of the subsequent year. Uh, and then since that time, we've worked to fine tune the model. Um, we brought the model to a few different uh, healthcare sites, 
have started a randomized controlled trial with the model as well to see if it actually does improve uh, hospital efficiency across a few different metrics. Um, but I think all things considered, that was probably about a year and a half um, process from, you know, starting uh, with the idea to then having something live. You know, I think we were very fortunate to have support of a lot of different groups in order to make that happen. But that, that's kind of one experience that I've seen so far with uh, another, with other uh, kind of full cycle uh, project that I've seen. Um, this is sort of more software development focused, but with the um, NLP work that we were doing, we started out with sort of a mock-up concept of that locally on a colleague's computer um, and put together sort of like a demo video of what we had in mind over the course of a summer with the help of an intern over the next several months, went to work with getting feedback from clinicians on what they thought of a tool like this. And then we're able to win some funding by the end of that year, use that to then uh, pay some engineers internally and ultimately develop this software tool. And I think that was probably in a uh, state of being able to pilot live with clinicians, maybe nine or 10 months from the initial idea and mock-ups. So those are kind of just the the two data points that I have, but I'm sure you know people may be may be able to do it faster as well. Well, and of course, the thing that I've heard is also, you know, project dependent. What kinds of healthcare data you need, and the messiness that just is healthcare data. Mm-hmm. So you know, availability and accessibility is going to vary widely as well. Absolutely. Thank you for that. That's really useful. I like to end every episode by asking a couple of big wonderings. The first, we talk about AI as, you know, a tool that solves specific problems. If you can think of any problem, professionally, personally, lighthearted or not, what kind of tool would you like to have to solve whatever that problem is? Hmm, That is a great question. Let's see. I think kind of the idea of a um, of sort of like a chat agent that can actually not only sort of like produce text responses, but actually do actions, uh, you know, whether that's uh, doing things in the electronic health record or even kind of like ordering lunch or a coffee or whatever that might be, um, would be really cool. And I think that there are kind of like a number of uh, early stage companies working on doing exactly that. So I'll be curious to see what comes of those. I I can see that saving a lot of time in life. Mm -hmm. The next big wondering is around trust because in machine learning, in all kinds of technology, there's a question around trust and in medicine and healthcare in particular, but uh, I'm going to ask you about people instead of machines for a moment. How do you know you can really trust someone? I think there's a openness about people that you can trust. Um, their actions generally match their uh, sort of like verbal communications and nonverbal communications. You know, you have some kind of sense of a, uh, a track record of them doing good things and also just living out those uh, qualities of, of openness and um, integrity and honesty. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for your time today. I learned a lot talking to you. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed this.